I've been preaching a long time. I'm not certain, though, that I can remember ever having preached this parable, which is usually entitled the parable of the wicked tenants. I'm going to suggest another name, a better name for this parable before the end of the sermon. So be on the lookout for that. And if I forget, please somebody just raise your hand and remind me because I do. And I did forget it earlier in the early service until later in the sermon. But I, I don't recall ever having um, preached this, this passage or gotten it with such um, power as it's placed here on this, the last Sunday of Lent. Now you remember that next Sunday is Palm Sunday. We'll begin out in the gazebo and we'll process into the church and we'll go through the passion narrative and it's a very, very powerful service. But this, this kind of tees up, if you will, next week by what happens in the narrative in the life of Jesus this week. Jesus has uh, come into Jerusalem. Chapter 19 of Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus comes in triumphantly. He's riding on a colt, uh, which is one of the symbols of the Messiah. He is being very blatant about his actions. He comes into the city and he's received by the masses of people who are enthralled with his teaching. They are overwhelmed with this one who, to quote over and over again in the gospels, who speaks and teaches with authority not like the scribes and the Pharisees. He has authority in his word. The people are drawn to him. He is charismatic and they are following him. He comes into the temple mount and he sees, if you recall that scene where Jesus gets angry. We love that passage. We, you know, we always loved when Jesus does something unexpected. He gets angry and he drives out the, the money tax, the money uh, changers from the temple, not the tax collectors, that's a different story, but, but, the, but the money changers, remember that they basically had begun to bring the commerce of the city into the temple, and they were doing little trades, you know, multi-purpose uh, construction kind of a thing, you know, so they had booths set up so they could facilitate commerce, and Jesus is appalled by it, and he drives out the money changers, he, he disrupts their commerce, and basically what it looks like is that, that with all of his followers and all the crowd, that Jesus basically effectively shuts down business for an entire day in the temple. Needless to say, the religious leaders are not happy with Jesus, and they begin to come together in mass. They become unified in their desire to find some way to bring Jesus down. And so they together, Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes, high priests, all the Sanhedrin, which is their religious body of governing, uh, governance, they all come together and they begin to plot and to connive and to find ways to bring Jesus down. Which brings us to our present chapter in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 20 is the first of those encounters and they'll go on. This is where, you know, the render to Caesar what is Caesar's and all this sort of thing comes up and about, about resurrection. They start quizzing him and it's basically their last attempt, last attempt to try to overwhelm Jesus. They ask him, whose authority do you say these things? Who gave you the permission? Who gave you authority to drive out our money changers from the temple to, to assert power over our, our business? Who, Jesus, why are you up in our business, so to speak, in common vocabulary? And Jesus says, let me ask you a question. By whose authority did John the Baptist speak? And they say, well, that's a touchy question. Because if we say 
was his own authority or man's authority, the crowd is probably going to kill us because they love John. He was as popular as Jesus, maybe even more popular at his height. And, and, and if we say his authority came from God, well, we validate Jesus' authority because obviously John was constantly preaching Jesus. Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Listen to him. So in typical freshman college fashion, they say, we don't know. Like that's a legitimate answer, right? I don't know. Well, Jesus says, neither will I tell you by whose authority I speak. And it seems as if Jesus says, I am done talking. I am done with this yakking with you guys. I am over it. But in fact, Jesus does answer them. He just doesn't answer them in straight prose. He answers them in poetry. He answers them in a parable, in an extended metaphor, which is one of the ways that Jesus loves to communicate. Now, the last three weeks, we've been looking at several uh, of these parables. A couple of weeks ago, we we talked about, um, oh gosh, what did we talk about? I was preaching, so I should remember this. We talked about repentance, and it's, the, it's this idea of, of, you know, is it possible to repent, and what does repentance look like? Last week, we, we looked at the prodigal, of the, the prodigal son story, and we looked at an individual case of not only repentance, but the, the heart of a merciful father and the prodigal's father who receives back his son, and then even extends grace to the older son, who is equally a prodigal in his own way you got to go back and listen to those if you missed them. But now we have a third parable. And this is this parable that we often call the parable of the wicked tenants. And Jesus tells this parable as a way of answering their question of whose authority he speaks. Now, mind you, I mean, what a perfect setup, right? We're, We're heading towards Palm Sunday. Jesus' terrific entry into the city... Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're throwing the palm branches. But this is what partakes just before it. Jesus says, let me tell you a story. It's about a landowner who has a vineyard. Now this should immediately, for us it's like, okay, tell me more about the story. But for a first century Jew, immediately their minds went to Isaiah 5. Because in Isaiah 5, we hear a parable that Isaiah was commanded to tell that was about Israel being a vineyard and God being the vine dresser. But this vineyard was reprobate. It did not produce good fruit. It produced wild grapes. I assume that's not a good thing, Jeff. I don't know. Not a good thing at all, my wine connoisseur tells me. And so Jesus, uh, not Jesus, God the Father tells through Isaiah, says, I will judge my vineyard Because of its unrighteous and unjust fruit. In other words, it's bad fruit. So vineyards meant a whole lot to first century Judaism. It also means a lot to modern Christianity. We we like this symbol. Father James is wearing uh, some grape vines on his on his stole this morning. So if you're over in the chapel, which of course this building was owned previously by the Vineyard Church. And you see a cross, kind of a 90s, 1970s stylistic cross. It's, it's very fashionable. And then at the bottom there are these grape vines. It's something we carry on. Instantly Jesus has their attentions. Let me tell you about a vine vineyard and a landowner. He has the vineyard 
and he sets it up and he gives it to tenants to care for, to be stewards of, and then he goes away. Instantly, every Jewish person's mind is attuned to the fact that Jesus is saying something very common. It'd be like if I said Gator or Tim Tebow. Um, instantly, you know, there's, it just goes to a whole new level of people living in Gainesville when you say those two words. Well, that's the same kind of imagery that it would have conjured up for those who hear the words vineyard, vine dresser, landowner. See, I got you awake now. So Jesus begins to tell the story, and it's, it's almost like an allegory. It's so blatant. It's like the landowner is obviously God, and his, his, his stewards are obviously the prophets. But they, the, So the steward, the first one comes, he comes to the, to the tenants, these tenant farmers, and he says, give to my master what you owe him. Very appropriate. We have a farm up in West Georgia. We have rented it out because none of us want to be farmers irony of ironies and so there is a farmer who's also an itinerant preacher another strange twist and but he pays us rent to use our farm if he stops paying rent we will go up there and we will throw his you know what off of the property so the the tenants do not receive the landowner's servant in fact they cast him out it says that they they beat him and they throw him out empty-handed and at that point if my farmer tribe we we would have already told you what we would have done but this landowner in Jesus' story doesn't do that what does he do he sends yet a second servant and the second servant is mistreated in like fashion hurt sent away empty-handed all right told you what we would do not what happens in the story, a third servant is sent. This one is also mistreated. But you notice in the narrative, Jesus says that the, the, the abuse is escalating because this third servant is wounded, not just beat up, but gashed to the point where they're bleeding, where there's an open womb, is a bad scene, and also thrown out. Now, just to remind you, Jesus' parables are sort of like good jokes. A joke works because you don't expect the punchline. It's a twist, right? It's unexpected, and that makes it funny, unless I tell it, and then I have to explain it. But when, but when most good joke tellers, it's, a, it's that twist. Well, that's the way the parable works. And so up until that point, the whole audience, all these religious leaders who've come to ask Jesus this question... Whose authority are you working under, Jesus? Everybody is with him on the parable, although they're a little miffed that this landowner has been so tolerant. And then what you expect is, and then the landowner raised an army, and he came to those wicked tenants, and he drove them off of the property, and he gave the property to other tenants who would pay him what he was owed. That's what you would expect that's what you would get in West Georgia. That is not what you get in Jesus' parable. Instead, the, and Jesus even, he even highlights it like a good setup. He says, what will I do, says the landowner? I will send my son. Perhaps they will listen to him. 
Now just to remind you, this is Jesus telling this story in the temple after he's entered Jerusalem, knowing what is about to happen in his life over the next few days. He is extending one last opportunity of grace to the religious leaders. It's as if he's screaming at them, can't you understand who I am? Whose authority? I am the son. I'll remind you of the Old Testament story, Jacob and Esau. Um, remember Jacob steals Esau's birthright in Genesis? And, and then later on after he gets you know, kind of conned by Laban, his uncle, he comes back to, uh, to the promised land and Jacob comes with all of his people and we're told that Esau meets Jacob with 400 armed men. If you want to know what Middle Eastern culture, how it responds to this sort of ill treatment, it's 400 armed men. Now Esau doesn't attack Jacob, but Esau is not going to get played again. Esau wants to make sure Jacob understands, look, dude, you, you left, we left on bad terms. If you're coming back, you better not start any trouble. I got 400 of my guys ready to take care of business. But Jesus says, the landowner says to himself, I will send my son unarmed, unescorted to these wicked tenants. Perhaps they will listen to him. Kenneth Bailey has suggested, and I agree with him, this is in fact not the parable of the wicked tenants. This is the parable of the noble landowner and his son. Jesus describes a landowner who is God, who is merciful beyond merciful, who has compassion and grace on those who deserve to be judged and judged now. And yet, God does the unthinkable thing. He sends his son. Now, what so exploded in my mind and heart as I read and studied the scripture this week was I realized that this, yes, of course, we are on the verge of Holy Week. We know we're headed for the cross. We are all at the end of Lent. You know, denying ourselves and trying to be more, you know, obedient and prayerful and repentant. And, and yet we focus on the cross and yet immediately my mind rushes back to the incarnation. I mean, think about it. The incarnation, Jesus' birth. Here is God sending his son into the world. Not simply just as an unarmed son to face an angry set of tenants but a helpless baby born to a powerless peasant couple in a remote backwater town. I mean, instantly I'm, I'm reminded of the incarnation. It's like, it's like it's the, I don't know, for, for me, it's like it's that moment where Jesus looks back to the incarnation before he looks forward to the crucifixion. And he says to the religious opponents, Grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, compassion in the face of what should be judgment. God has sent his son to try to reconcile the situation. 
Jesus, knowing fully what they will do, continues with the parable. After having made that cliffhanger moment, he says, and they looked at him and they said, this is the heir. Perhaps they thought that the landowner was dead. That's why they thought they could kill the son and inherit the land. They say, this is the heir. If we kill him, it will be ours. And so they took him outside of the city Excuse me. They took him outside of the vineyard. You know where I'm going with this. And they killed him. You can't sell a piece of property if you announce to the would-be buyers. By the way, we murdered somebody back in this room. How would you like to buy this four-bedroom, three-bath house, you know, ranch-style home? You know, it doesn't, doesn't sell well. The same is true for a vineyard. So you can't kill the son inside the vineyard. You take him outside. But how ironic. Where is Jesus killed? He's killed outside the ancient city of David, outside of the ancient walls of Jerusalem. Golgotha is out. They take thieves and criminals and they they crucify them out of the city so that they don't taint the city with that lucky death. And Jesus says, having killed his son, beaten and abused his servants, spit in the face of mercy and grace. What will that landowner do? How much power do you think that those words commanded Jesus? What will that landowner do? Well, Jesus doesn't leave it long there. He continues. He will judge those wicked tenants. He will come and he will destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. If you were with me a few weeks ago at, the, at Greater Bethel, I preached on a similar story Jesus tells. And, and there is a time, it's a, it's a limited time offer. At some point, our hearts become so hardened that there is no hope for mercy for us and we fall under God's judgment. And we're told in the scripture that when Jesus said this, they cried out as one, surely not. We're the vineyard of God. We learned the lesson of Isaiah 5. We've cared and stewarded for it well. Do you know that in the ancient temple, the one that Herod built, the second temple, when you walk through the entryways, they had put a sculpture of a grapevine, except instead of just being, you know, out of stone, it was sculptured in stone, but then on the leaves and the grapes, in place of the leaves were gold, painted gold, and in place of the grapes were jewels. And if you were wealthy and you wanted to really impress the high priest, you would make donations of other jewels so that you could make the grapevine even more ornate. You think Father James's stole is ornate. You should have seen this sculpture. We are God's vineyard. We're his special people. Jesus said he will take this from them and he will give it to others. Surely not, they cry out. If you know the history of Israel, by the year 70, the Romans come in and because of revolts, they destroy the temple. 
They push over the pillars. We're talking about a 35-acre piece of property that they utterly decimate. And Judaism is without a temple even to this day. Jesus, who is the son, becomes the prophet and reminds them of what is to come for those who will not fall on their knees before the mercy of this amazing God who gives mercy in the face of judgment. Well, Jesus puts the exclamation point on the passage by then reminding them in response, surely not, well, read what it says. And he reminds them of a part of the scripture that we'll actually read next week. Next week, you'll hear this as we process in uh, with the litany of the palms. We will read uh, uh, Psalm 118, where it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, a few verses before that, guess what it says? It says this very words right here, verse Verse 17, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's weird because if you read the whole of, of Psalm 118, it's all about external enemies and it's, it's about this liturgy, about the people coming as pilgrims to worship the Lord in the temple. And then at some point it changes and it begins to declare that, that it's not just the enemies from without, but in fact it is the ones who have the power to build who've rejected the very cornerstone. A cornerstone would have been that, 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 special, that special architectural place in the building where you placed a cornerstone and everything else, every angle, everything in the whole structure all worked off of that cornerstone. It might have been at the, begin, at the bottom or it might have been at the top. We're not really sure from the ancient building, but we know that it was that, that pivotal piece that was so important to architecture and engineering and building in those days. And yet, the psalmist declares, the builders have rejected the cornerstone. Right there, embedded in the Psalms in the Old Testament, is this prophetic word that God's Messiah would come and that the builders, the, the leaders, would reject him. And here's Jesus in the temple telling this parable in the face of all their questions about whose authority. Whose authority? I'm the son that the father has sent in compassion and mercy. And yes, I know that you're going to kill me, but you will not have the last word. And Jesus goes on to put that exclamation point by the next verse, which talks about two other scriptures. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, for the longest time, when I was a young Christian, I used, to, I used to read this passage and I thought, well, is it better for Jesus to fall on me or is it better for me to fall on Jesus? And I kind of, in my mind, my real kind of, you know, kind of vivid picture of, you know, falling from a long distance and crashing into Jesus and, and, and him falling on me. And I, I pretty much concluded it'd be better to fall on Jesus than have Jesus fall on you. Felt like it would be a better scenario and I kind of, you know, you know, spiritualized it with, you know, well, we're broken. You know, let me t tell you the answer. Both, by the way, that's completely wrong. The answer is to fall on your knees and beg for mercy and compassion. It's not to want either of the other two. The other two are bad scenarios. 
Jesus is, is saying in the first by quoting the Old Testament, he, he's referring back to Isaiah 8 where it talks about the, the stone or the rock of offense that will cause many to stumble. In the New Testament, Paul picks up on that in Romans. He talks about the scandalon, the stone of offense, the scandalous Jesus, the God who becomes man, who allows himself to be killed for the sins of the world, but rises on the third day. The tenants are unworthy. They can't recognize the Son, and so the vineyard is taken from them. We know in history, we know from the study of the New Testament that the vineyard is given, God's, God's vineyard is given to the Gentile world, and for a very long time, the Gentile world dominates the vineyard. The people of God are primarily Gentile people. 1970, you find the first Messianic Jewish congregation. Since then, thousands of Messianic congregations have spread up. The Jewish people are being brought back in. It's part of what the psalmist is probably talking about in our Psalm 127 today and being restored. But, but here's the problem, you guys. Now this dominating Gentile church that has been entrusted as vineyard stewards for God, this church is being unfaithful to the vineyard. Because they're less and less willing to tolerate the scandal of the sun. This week I was with somebody and we were talking about something about some sort of a um, offshoot of Christianity, and I just said, look, I said, Here's, here it is for me in a nutshell. Anything that starts getting away from Jesus is, is bad. You know, all of historic Christianity focuses on, is centered on the person of Jesus. So if you start talking about religion or calling it Christianity and it's, it's, it's moving away from Jesus, it's it's bad. It's not, I mean, I'm just a simple guy, you know. He's the rock of offense. He's also the stone that is not cut from human hands. The second part of the verse is from a reference to Daniel 2. Nebuchadnezzar, remember he's the king in Babylon and he has, this, he has these bad dreams and he sends for Daniel and he says, here's my dream. I, I built this incredible idol. It, it was this, this idol of a god and it starts off with like precious metals and gold and, and fine rubies and all that sort of stuff. And then it works its way down to, to hard metals and then eventually at the bottom it's got clay feet. And then in this dream... You know, all of a sudden there's this rock that comes out, the stone that falls from heaven, and it just completely destroys the idol. It is completely annihilates and crushes completely uh, this idol. What does it mean, Daniel? And Daniel says, says this, is the, this is the prophecy of all the kings of the world who, who build their empires and who, who pledge allegiance to lesser false gods and it's this one that comes from heaven, this rock that is not cut by human hands. It comes down and it crushes and God establishes his kingdom around it and it will have no end. And Nebuchadnezzar says, you, Daniel, serve the God of gods, the Lord of all lords. And he falls down, at least for a little while, in humility 
and in worship of God. Friends, nothing sets us up better for Holy Week than this, this passage. I'm just, I am, and there's no neat way to end this because I don't think we're supposed to have a neat way to end it. It's not an easy kind of, here's a little crafty way to put it all together. It's, it's, it's Jesus being so transparent. Whose authority? I'm the son. I'm the stone that the builders rejected. I'm the rock of offense that will cause many to stumble. I am the one who has come from heaven and I will annihilate every power that stands above me. And so what do we do? We fall before the seat of mercy. We give thanks to a God who is so merciful and compassionate. We say, we will be those tenants who will take up the vineyard and we will care for it by recognizing the Son. And we will fall before Him in mercy and compassion, asking Him to save us. Is it any wonder why Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, I press on. I count everything else rubbish, refuse, when it's compared to the knowledge of God in Christ Jesus. Not that I've already attained it, Paul says, but I press on and I make it my solemn vow because Jesus has grabbed hold of me I will grab hold of him and I will follow him through suffering because I know the suffering will lead to victory. Oh, what I would would give to have been there as these religious leaders just get laid out, flayed before the sun. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The parable of the noble landowner and his son. Amen.